Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast is from our Hot Topic series, designed to discuss current topics in a manner suitable for medical professionals, patients, and the general public as well. We are pleased to welcome two guests to today's episode, Dr. Robert Lemansky and Nurse Elizabeth Clark. Dr. Lemansky is a professor of pediatrics and medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison. Dr. Lemansky is a past president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and has spent his career making remarkable contributions to research, clinical care, and advocacy centered around pediatric asthma, including his pivotal work in helping to create SAMPRO, a school-based asthma management program. Liz Clark has over 25 years of experience as a school nurse and in school health services administration. Currently employed by the National Association of School Nurses as a nursing education and practice specialist, She's a former member of the Board of Directors for the National Association of School Nurses, past president of the Colorado Association of School Nurses, and a nationally certified school nurse, and a fellow of the National Academy of School Nurses. Both of our guests are exceptionally accomplished in their respective areas and contributed to the creation of the recently released document, School Attendance, Asthma, and COVID-19 Compliance Resources for School Nurses, which we'll be discussing today. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the show. Dr. Lemansky, we'll start with you. You've spent the majority of your career delving into various aspects of pediatric asthma. Before we get into the specifics of this document, can you just take some time to describe to our listeners some of the basics surrounding asthma symptoms, triggers, and management? Sure. Before I do that, I think it's important for us to recognize that asthma is not a single disease. It has multiple different ways of getting to the endpoint of symptoms which most commonly are cough, wheezing, and shortness of breath. There are multiple triggers of asthma. In children, probably the most common trigger are viral respiratory infections. We have also recently appreciated a contribution of bacterial infections to um, triggering symptoms. We also know that allergen exposure can potentially trigger an asthmatic response. And this can come in terms of um, acute exposures, such as someone who's allergic to a cat or a dog and goes to someone's house who has a cat or dog and has an acute asthma episode, or on a seasonal basis. For example, people who are allergic to ragweed may have more asthmatic uh, symptoms during the fall. People who are allergic to grass may have more symptoms in late spring. And in people who are allergic to dust mites, they may have pretty much uh, symptoms all year long, as dust mites obviously tend to be an indoor problem. We also know that exercise, and not all patients with asthma, but some, can um, trigger an acute 
episode, which usually can spontaneously resolve, but um, students can pre-medicate with um, bronchodilator inhalers, which are extremely effective in preventing this response from occurring. We also know that in certain spots of the country, irritants and pollution can potentially um, trigger um, an asthmatic episode. And um, one way to think about having asthma is that it's basically what we call hyper-irritable airways, which means that an environmental exposure that would not necessarily trigger cough and shortness of breath in somebody without asthma, in somebody who has asthma and has the same type of exposure, they may become symptomatic. As far as management goes, we think of treatment in terms of two sort of categories, acute relief uh, medications, which are basically bronchodilator meds that uh, usually will, will provide relief within about three to five minutes and last about three to four hours. The other are what we call chronic long-term controller medications. These medications really target the inflammatory response, which is part of asthma in many patients. And so these would have to be taken basically every day to keep the airways under control uh, long-term. What we would see in the school system is a child could come into uh, the nurse's office or other healthcare provider with um, acute symptoms. And um, they would then have to be potentially addressed. And in someone who has known asthma, they would hopefully have an asthma action plan available to the healthcare provider or a individualized healthcare plan within schools. And the nurse or the healthcare provider would then follow that plan to hopefully get that particular episode under control. So I'm gonna stop there. I think, I hope I've given you um, sort of a, a background about what we think about in terms of asthma symptoms the triggers of asthma attacks and the management of these episodes, both acute and long and long term. Yes, thank you. That that was a fantastic introduction. Um, and I, you sort of started to, to delve into this important area and what we're going to talk about today. But I'd like to hear Nurse Clark talk about you know some of the important aspects surrounding asthma management in the school setting, really at any time, let alone during you know COVID nineteen. So tell us some more about what happens inside the school setting. Hey, Dave, thank you for asking me that question. You know, initially, it's important for school nurses to do some case finding, uh, identifying those students that are diagnosed with asthma. Oftentimes, that's accomplished by a parent report, um, sharing information in, you know, enrollment, application, those sort of things. You know, we also um, oftentimes will find students that have symptoms that are routinely coming into the nurse's office or health room. And then, you know, following up and referring those students to um, care in the community to, you know, get that diagnosis of asthma if they don't already have it. And then from this group of students, you know, we want to prioritize those needing focused school nurse-led case management. We base that on, you know, a set of criteria such as students that are newly, diagnosis, newly diagnosed who, you know, aren't familiar with um, self-management in the school setting. Um, their age and developmental level. We have many students young, you know, preschool students or kindergarten students, 
and students that have um, perhaps a developmental level that is different than their age. They have special um, health care needs. And um, we also have students who have challenges with attendance, um, who may have you know, significant attendance issues, chronic attendance concerns that need some case management um, to support their um, academic success. Um, we also have had students who had frequent ER visits or MD visits that need some case management support. It's really, really critical to establish communication between the student, the family, and the healthcare provider, and to identify key aspects of their medical plan. You know, it's really important the school nurse obtain the asthma action plan from their healthcare provider to identify goals and priorities for the student and the family. And development of the student's individualized healthcare plan to guide their health services in the school is really critical. You wanna make sure we're implementing it correctly, we're providing staff training, and evaluating our treatment plan while in the school setting. Another important aspect that I want to mention is um, indoor air quality and reducing those asthma triggers, which Dr. Lemansky mentioned. You know, we want to really talk about non-scented cleaning products for our students with asthma, um, no furry classroom pets, and also, you know, being up to date with maintenance and repairs in the school, such as, you know, not having plumbing leaks or issues with mold. And I think one of the most critical things for our, our students with asthma is really having that access to quick-acting asthma rescue inhalers throughout their school day, including to and from school um, transportation and their after-school activities. Many of our students stay after school and you know, are in band or sports events and need to have access to their quick inhaler or rescue inhaler um, in those activities as well. Mm, wow. So I'm hearing from both of you already just a, a fascinating sort of background surrounding the complexities of asthma management overall and really all that, you know, going to school with asthma entails. And, you know, I, I personally, I, I talk to families about how children with asthma, you know, oftentimes will spend more waking hours in the school setting than they actually will at home during the school year. Uh, so these are very important points that you've touched upon already. And, you know, as we transition to specific issues, you know, related to COVID-19, Dr. Lemansky, what have we learned about COVID-19 and how it affects children overall, as well as those who have underlying asthma? Well, we're learning more every day, um, obviously, but it appears as if children, if they do get infected with COVID-19, the illness and the symptoms they experience tend to be less um, severe than we see in adults. And perhaps that uh, this could be at, related, at least in part, to comorbid conditions in the adults. In a child who has asthma, who gets COVID-19, there has, was a recent report that in New York, the rate of hospitalizations tends to be a little bit greater in, in the kids who have asthma. But on the other hand, they tend to have less severe episodes and they tend to be discharged uh, um, uh, quicker than we see with other uh, viral respiratory infections. Now, the other way to think about COVID-19, which you may or may not think about, but I am involved in a number of uh, research projects, and some of these have an outcome or a primary outcome as the number of uh, wheezing respiratory illnesses that a child has during a certain period of time. And what we're seeing during this, this uh, sequestration for COVID-19 
is that the rate of these episodes is almost zero. <laughs> so um, the fact that this is in the community and the kids are not going to school, they're not playing with other children, is dramatically reducing the spread of viral respiratory illnesses. And therefore, the rate of asthma episodes and asthma attacks is going down really significantly. That that is fascinating, uh, and you know it it uh, it there may be some silver linings to all this. Obviously, none of us want to be in this situation, but um, I find that information comforting and also very interesting that we need to learn more. Now, Nurse Clark, what are some of the overall concerns that you've heard from school nurses about a return to in-person learning during COVID nineteen? Well, you know, I think um, we've heard a lot of concerns from school nurses um, about the return in person, and many schools across the country have started um, with students in their schools. And so what we're hearing, um, number one, is, you know, school nurses being able to differentiate between COVID-19 symptoms from a child's usual asthma symptoms. And, you know, um, if they're having respiratory difficulty, they're really, you, you can't tell, right? Mm-hmm. And um, as Dr. Lemansky said, you know, oftentimes students um, with COVID-19 do not have any symptoms. So, you know, that, that certainly is a concern for school nurses. Another real um, significant concern that we've heard is that nurses are concerned about the health status of students who may have not been receiving follow-up asthma care or access to care in the community since the beginning of the pandemic. We've heard that many families have been hesitant to take children in for well-child visits or take them you know, for treatment because of you know, COVID and the scare in their communities. Um, you know, we wonder if students have had access to medications that they've needed, are they continuing to take their prescribed medications? Um, and so that is a concern um, that school nurses have. Also, you know, there's also a um, recommendation to not provide nebulizers in schools because of the aerialization of the respiratory secretions. And so, you know, the request is to have multi-dose inhalers um, rather than nebulizers at school. And so um, there are students who perhaps need some education and training, as well as um, informing families about that recommendation and working with those primary care providers to have those orders updated. We also really have heard about that separate space in schools, having an isolation room for students that are, are sick compared to students that are coming in for routine health treatments, such as their routine inhalers and other um, care that is provided in school. And so many schools have difficulties with space and um, having the challenge of having a separate location for well students and sick students in um, receiving care at school nursing services um, is a challenge for many school nurses across the country. I also do want to include the social emotional issues for students returning to school. There's a lot of stress and anxiety as a result of this pandemic. You know, many families have experienced some sort of loss, you know, such as loss of jobs, access to health care, um, and even basics such as shelter and food. Um, some, of course, lost loved ones. And so um, school nurses are wanting to be prepared to deal with not only the physical concerns that are going on, but also those social emotional issues that our, stu- our students will be um, dealing with. Another concern, I-, I live in Colorado and many Western states are experiencing poor outdoor air quality due to mm-hmm. the fires that are burning in the West, yeah. And you know, wildfire smoke is a trigger for students with asthma and you know, how are schools gonna balance you know, outdoor activities, exercise, 
and being impacted by the wildfire smoke? You know, how is that going to be manageable? And also just a couple other things, you know, basic mitigation strategies in younger students, such as physical distancing and keeping face coverings on if required, you know, that is going to take some preparation, some education. You know, it's, it's difficult to tell a five-year-old you have to stay six feet away from your little friend because they don't even know what six feet is, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think um, that's going to take some time. And um, NASN, um has created some videos to help with this, and they're on our website, and um, they're on hand washing, face coverings, and when to stay home when you're sick. And we're hoping that those will, you know, help families as well as school staff and um, teachers in sort of that education piece that is so needed for our families. And and the last thing with COVID um, for our school nurses is um, having access to adequate PPE. That is, has been a real concern. You know, we've seen that in, in some of the hospitals and hospital settings. Many school nurses donated um, their, their masks and gloves and things to hospitals early on, you know, in March when um, we were told of, of the shortages. And sometimes those things have been back ordered. They have not received their orders yet. Some haven't had access to N95 masks or more protective um, medical masks. So, that, that's a really big concern um, for many of our nurses across the country. We could probably spend an entire episode of just addressing this and then revisiting it every month or so, I would assume, until we <laughs> get through this pandemic. Now, you know, off the top of your head, and um, I, I apologize if I'm catching you off guard with this, but I know a lot of families that I, I work with and patients of mine, they don't have a, a school nurse full time at their building. Um, and do you happen to know, you know, ballpark nationwide, what percentage of either buildings or districts don't have a, a full time school nurse available? I do. Um, Nassen um, did some research a couple of years ago, and um, 25% of schools across the country do not have a school nurse at all. And 35% have a part-time school nurse or a school nurse who may have multiple school assignments. You know, they may have three schools or five schools or 10 schools um, that they rotate around within a community or um, county. And, you know, about 35%, 40% of schools have a full-time school nurse every day. And, and most of those are around the East Coast. Mm-hmm. As you go farther into the West, um, Midwest and Western part of the U.S., um, there are less school nurses every day in school. Oh, boy. Oh, okay. Uh, Dr. Lemansky, can you tell us about the origins of the document that we'll be discussing today, such as, you know, why was this necessary, who's the intended audience, and who was involved in drafting the summary? Um, sure. This uh, was part of an initiative that was started by the COVID-19 task force by the Quad AI, or which resides in the Quad AI, and Paul uh, Williams is the uh, uh, chair of that particular committee. Paul asked a couple of the um, different uh, committees that are within the academy, including the Office of School-Based Management of Asthma, which I am chair of, and also the Asthma Cough Diagnosis and Treatment um, Committee. And there were two representatives from that committee, Roxana Siles and Bridget um, Jonas. and um, also, of course, uh, Liz from the National Association of School uh, Nurses. And uh, we had also some help, some big help from uh, Renee uh, Van Lick, who uh, works with me as, in terms of um, administrating the, uh, the Office of School-Based Management of Asthma. 
Now, the Office of School-Based Management of Asthma is where our temporal or school-based asthma management program uh, resides. And um, if people who are listening to the podcast are interested, the uh, reference to uh, SAMPRO, it's a very multidisciplinary approach to um, taking care of children with asthma in schools. And uh, the document contains uh, appropriate references for people to be able to access this program. And who uh, who is the audience? Uh, who was this developed for? The intended audience was the task force was getting a number of inquiries from uh, docs and members of the academy and probably from um, parents and families as well. If there was any some kind of a guidance document that could be available um, for them to look at. And so this number one was intended for school uh, personnel, school nurses, healthcare providers, et cetera, who um, deal with children with asthma during this particular COVID-19 pandemic. But I think there's enough information in this document, particularly in the reference section, that could be very valuable information for uh, clinicians who um, deal with children with asthma. Mm. And in general, is this summary meant to serve as, you know, is this the letter of the law? These are strict guidelines that every school absolutely must follow. And if not, really, what's the best way for this information to be put to use? Well, we intend to um, disseminate this to various schools throughout the country. As far as implementation goes, that I think is really going to be up to the individual schools and the school districts. As I have learned with the SAMPRO program, people deal with these issues very differently in various um, school districts throughout the country. So this particular document should serve as a framework for people to look at to hopefully provide guidance, but it's not meant to be um, a medical legal document where if you don't follow these rules, you're in trouble. <laughs> now, it's great. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And and for those who, who have not um, read it yet, it is available on the Academy's website. Um, it's not, it's not, you know, cumbersome. Um, it's just a, a couple of pages with some really great information, which we're now going to discuss. Uh, so you can listen to us, you know, discuss it as well. Um, and speaking of which, Nurse Clark, why are face masks recommended by many schools? And do you have any tips on how to help children get used to wearing them all day or adults for that matter? Well, Dave, I do want to share that, um, you know, if for children, we don't call them face masks in school. For our students, um, we call them face coverings, mm. which is a terminology that CDC uses. Um, face mask really is for more of a medical, you know, face mask, like a surgical mask or an N95, one of those. And, and we're expecting our, our students and our staff to wear um, face coverings, which are cloth masks. And so CDC has lots of guidance out, out there and, you know, recommends that children older than two years are encouraged to wear cloth face coverings. Um, this does vary in state recommendations. So depending on where, um, you know, people are practicing and, and families live, um, they can also check with their local school district. Some school districts are recommending certain ages, like 10 and up, wear face coverings, and others are saying, you know, five and up, kindergarten, all of them. So we also want to think about children with special health care needs, particularly um, students with sensory issues may not be able to tolerate face coverings. 
And, you know, um, more is being learned almost every day about the epidemiology of COVID among children and, you know, how easily they spread the virus. And so, you know, um, the early research does show that um, face coverings do make a difference. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are advocating for that. There are some tips out there on, um, you know, how to sort of get children used to wearing uh, face coverings. Um, CDC also has lots of videos. Um, I mentioned the, the NASM videos earlier, um, and they are in English and Spanish. So those can be downloaded and put on, um, you know, websites or put in newsletters to families. Uh, many school nurses are, you know, distributing those to their, um, their stakeholders. But some of the things that uh, come to mind that families can do uh, in working with their children um, in regards to face coverings is, you know, make those face coverings fun. You know, you can decorate them, um, have the children pick out their favorite colors. We've seen many that have, you know, characters on them, like, you know, if you like a certain um, cartoon character, those sort of things. In younger children, include face coverings in play at home. You know, you can put a face covering on your stuffed animals or your action figures or your dolls. You know, you can also practice wearing them at home for longer periods of time. And so there are many school communities that are still on sort of that virtual at home learning and, and have the children, you know, practice wearing them for, you know, 10 minutes um, at a time and then a half hour and then an hour and, and see how they do. You know, children are very resilient and in most part tend to um, adjust very easily, a little bit more easily than us adults. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then, um, you know, make sure that there's also proper education, how to take them off and put them on correctly. We don't want them to, you know, have dirty hands, so they should be washing their hands before they put them on, um, making sure it's the the face covering is fitting over their nose and mouth um, snugly, and but it's comfortable. And um, and then if they touch their face in any way, um, they need to wash their hands. If before they take their face covering off, they should also um, wash their hands. And so lots and lots of hand washing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they can also practice that hand washing at home, you know, um, when before they put their mask on, when they take it off, we, you know, we're recommending just like CDC, 20 seconds of hand washing with, um, you know, they can sing the happy birthday song twice or the ABC song and making sure that they're washing that face covering every day after it's used. Um, we no. don't want the same one used every day, right? I mean, you know, for the week, it has to be washed every day, um, either hand washing or, you know, throw it in the washing machine and dry it. So. I think those things are most important tips. Yeah, absolutely. Those are fantastic tips. And, you know, our, our children are going, but they're seven and 10 and they're in a hybrid model. So they went two days last week was their first week and they, they go with an extra mask in uh, a, a Ziploc bag with their yeah. name on it. And that came in handy on day number one. Uh, so <laughs> that's yeah, probably going to be absolutely. part of it as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I do think that's, um, especially with children, you know, to have a backup just in case. And we are also saying, please don't share your mask with your friend. So if your friend has one that you think looks really fun, you know, do not share that with them. Keep your own mask and have them labeled in case it gets, you know, falls out of your pocket or, you know, gets out of your backpack or whatever. Those are important. Thank you for sharing those. Yeah, great. You know, Dr. Levansky, as I'm the, you know, as you know, the, I'm the social media editor for the Academy and uh, it's 
literally my job to spend time online. And, and as I do so, uh, boy, I encounter a lot of, you know, interesting uh, takes on COVID-19 and a lot of misinformation, especially regarding face masks and face coverings, such as, you know, that they'll cause carbon dioxide retention or low oxygen levels, even decrease your immunity. Can you help us set the record straight? Will wearing a face mask pose any medical risk to uh, somebody with asthma, especially a child? No. <laughs> Uh, all right. <laughs> so is there any is there any evidence that it would cause underlying bronchoconstriction, decrease oxygen levels, asthma attacks, anything like that? My knowledge, no. And I've checked with a number of my colleagues before I came on this podcast if I was missing something in the literature. And um, I, I think you just have to use common sense. Um, that's the number one thing we need to be thinking about is transmission of this virus through aerosols. And, um, you know, you can breathe through a mask. People, if you think about a little kid when they go outside in the cold, I live in Wisconsin, you know, we always put scarves around our faces and, um, you know, it was not a big deal. So I didn't mean to be so forceful, but I think we just have to put our foot down and say, no, there isn't any evidence. I, I appreciate your forcefulness, and I agree. We need to offer evidence-based information and reassurance to all the all the parents and patients out there. Nurse Clark, th this document includes a discussion about the need for children with asthma to continue their daily medications if they have these prescribed. Why was that information included? That's a really great question. You know, with, with asthma being a chronic health condition that does not have a cure, it requires the ongoing self-management, even during a pandemic. And as I said before, you know, students may not have been receiving their follow-up asthma care, um, access to care in the community since the beginning of the pandemic. And so, you know, it's really important. Um, it's an important part of the nursing assessment done by the school nurse to help identify and focus on that student's individual health care plan. You know, what action steps to prioritize and the need to identify how to access medications for that student. It's really, really essential that students manage their asthma and remain in control of their symptoms. Um, you know, the early research also shows that, you know, that the folks that are in good control um, and maintaining their control of their symptoms are, are going to be better off if indeed they get sick with COVID-19. So we really, really want to stress that. Excellent. Uh, you know, we touched upon this a little bit earlier, uh, but, you know, Dr. Lemansky, can you tell us a little bit more about why this document uh, specifically discourages the use of nebulizers to deliver asthma medications inside the school setting? Uh, and what are the preferred ways for these medications to be delivered to children? Before I answer that question, can we just go back to the previous question? I just would like to add something. Please. Um, in terms of daily controller medications. Many of the daily controller medications that children um, take are inhaled corticosteroids. And there was some concern, albeit not, not, not a valid concern, that taking these medications may somehow make people more susceptible to getting COVID. And there's absolutely no data to support that. And this has actually been looked at um, in a prospective way. So now in answer to your question about nebulizers, we actually, our group, uh, when we were talking about this, the literature isn't black and white on this. The CDC seems to be coming down more on the side of, ah, nebulizers are okay. We, we don't think they're generating sufficient amounts of aerosols that we would need to be worried. But if you look at the World Health Organization's 
literature uh, documents which we reference in, in, in our guidance here, they're not as clear cut about this. So we decided to not say for sure you shouldn't use them, but we're saying that they should be discouraged from being used routinely in the healthcare environment in the school. And children, you know, using a meter dose inhaler with a spacer device, that's part and parcel of taking care of a patient with asthma. That should be taught to the, um, to the child and the family by the clinicians and the nurses in the schools about how to properly use a meter dose inhaler. And um, they should be just as effective in terms of uh, treating an acute attack as a nebulizer would be. Great. Um, you know, Nurse Clark, you mentioned before about um, asthma action plans and updated healthcare plans. And, you know, these are forms that I fill out hundreds of times a year for different, you know, different patients. And then it goes off into the, in the schools or and I have no idea what happens after that. So help us understand why are these important and what actually happens to them inside the school setting? Absolutely. The asthma action plan comes from the healthcare plan and outlines how to mitigate a medical emergency. So, you know, how to support the individual student's asthma control. It's important that all of our school staff have the responsibility for the student and have a copy and understand the steps to take to mitigate a medical emergency. The student's individual health care plan addresses ways to address the health of the whole child. It's a tool for the school nurse to organize the health services at school that support both the health and academic success of the student. Every student and their family are unique. They have individual strengths and challenges. While there's an evidence-based standard of care for asthma management, the plan of care to address the whole child takes into account all of these strengths and challenges. So it gives us the ability to, to do our work as school nurses and to keep students safe and in school. So you're saying that when my hand cramps from writing all these different forms out, there's a purpose behind it. Absolutely. And it's uh, really, really important. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's good to hear. That's great. Uh, Dr. Lemansky, you mentioned early on about um, exercise-induced asthma and pretreatment and things like that. And in this document, it even talks about exercise and recess and, and things along those lines. But in general, why is it important for children who have asthma to be physically active? Well, for one thing, um, what you don't want to do is make the child with asthma an asthmatic um, asthmatic cripple, if you will, mm. where they're singled out because they have asthma. And instead of uh, participating in normal uh, physical education classes, they're sitting on the sidelines and they're being looked at as being different. And that, that absolutely should not happen. As a clinician, it's, it's our, our, our job to be able to do everything we possibly can to get kids to participate in sports and participate in activities that they enjoy. And it's important for them to be physically active um, to improve their cardiovascular fitness. We know that as you improve your cardiovascular fitness, you improve your minute ventilation for certain activities. That is, you breathe less fast when you're running a mile as opposed to how fast you were breathing before you became physically active. And the importance of that is, is the major triggering factor for exercise-induced asthma is heat and water loss from breathing quickly. So if you're not breathing as quickly, you're not going to be losing um, heat and you're not going to be losing water and you're therefore going to be less likely to trigger an exercise-induced asthmatic episode. 
we have excellent pre-medication for people who have exercise-induced asthma. The, the story I like to tell my patients was that um, I believe in 1984, there were 90 U.S. athletes that competed in the Olympics. And um, I should say 90 had asthma. And um, they won 60 medals. Hmm. So having asthma shouldn't prevent you from competing at uh, an international event and winning medals. So, and it's up to us as, as clinicians to be able to um, get the right recipe, if you will, to make sure that kids can be as active as they want to be. No, that's great. And I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, um, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, exercise is good. If children with asthma are unable to exercise, it's up to us as the clinicians to find a way to make that happen. Uh, fantastic. Now, Nurse Clark, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be various protocols in place, depending upon district and building and location and things like that. But what are some of the measures that you've heard about or plan to use at your schools when a student with asthma develops respiratory symptoms in the school setting? this autumn or winter? Is it going to be automatically assumed that they have COVID-19 until proven otherwise? Or, you know, what kind of problem is this going to create? Well, you know, a student with respiratory complaints would meet the criteria for the recommendations for isolating a suspected case of COVID. Um, and, and this is indeed one of those concerns, you know, about that return to in-person learning. So, you know, knowing the student has an asthma diagnosis will certainly help the school nurse to use critical thinking and assessment skills when differentiating between asthma symptoms from COVID symptoms. Um, as we stated earlier, not every school has a school nurse present every day. And so um, it may be a non-nurse, un unlicensed personnel who you know, cannot make an assessment. And so they would have to follow the protocol saying if you know, there's a child who um, has symptoms associated that could meet the criteria for isolation, that child would have to be isolated and then you know, sent home to parents to care for. So it is a challenge. I mean, you know, I have to think back, you know, to my years as a school nurse, you know, we have children that would fall on the playground and they'd come in holding their arm and say, is my arm broken? And I'd say, gee, you know, I don't have my x-ray eyes today. I don't know. Um, and so, you know, there's some similarities here in that we can't tell always by, um, you know, looking at that child, whether or not they, they have COVID. Um, you know, the only way to do that is by testing. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, we have to err on the side of caution to protect our school community during this time and, um, you know, provide the best care we can during, um, you know, pretreatment and those sort of asthma um, care that we do routinely at school prior to um, exercise or activity. You know, those students certainly would just be, you know, treated as they normally would. But if they're not feeling well and having difficulties, then certainly they would fit the criteria for um, isolation and a suspected case of COVID. Does that answer mm. your question? No, yes, it does. And, you know, speaking of protection, uh, what, what should a school nurse do or school personnel if a student's brought to them due to asthma symptoms? Do they need to take any special precautions? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I really um, would like to stress the need to be prepared with that designated space, that isolation area, and, you know, to treat students with health issues in one location and then have a separate space for those isolated and suspected COVID cases. And you know, the situation is really handled best by a school nurse, not an unlicensed school staff. It requires thorough nursing assessment and analysis of findings, which are skills of a registered nurse. You know, you have to identify the next steps and ensure the health and safety of the student and the school. And you know, it is also recommended that school nurses don PPE when providing assessments on students 
with complaints of illness or respiratory symptoms. So again, having access to appropriate PPE so that nurses can also be protected and um, you know, not having to deal with um, you know, being quarantined or, or sent home themselves because of exposure. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing the same theme from both of you over and over again. That's uh, preparedness. Uh, it sounds like you know, for all of us to, to get back to this, uh, it's just we have to prepare ahead of time and we try to cover all of our bases as much as possible uh, for if and when issues arise. And, you know, Dr. Lemansky, I'd like to ask you a question, and I appreciate your answer to the, you know, about the misinformation. So I, I can't wait to hear your answer to this question. Um, I still, you know, personally, I hear gasps uh, when I talk about, you know, uh, the number of uh, puffs of albuterol that can safely be given to a child experiencing an asthma exacerbation. I hear this from parents and, and nurses and even primary care pediatricians. So uh, help us again set the record straight. You know, what's what's the proper treatment of a of an asthma exacerbation, and you know, how much is too much? Well, if I had to ask, uh, answer the question, what is a safe amount of albuterol? I would say a safe amount is enough. Mm. Uh, and, um, but if you want to put it in numerical terms, um, we normally say for our research protocols, if someone is using more than 12 puffs of albuterol in 24 hours, that should be uh, an indication that they need to be seen, that child needs to be seen. The other thing about albuterol is um, if you administer two to four puffs and the child gets better, that's great. But if they don't seem to be responding like you think they should be, then what you have to think about is whether or not the inhaler has any uh, medicine left in it. If this is an inhaler the child is bringing from home, is the child's technique appropriate? Are they taking the slow breath in and then hopefully breath holding for three to four uh, seconds to allow the aerosol particles to, by gravity, to deposit uh, deeper within the lung tissue. And um, so, you know, if a child is in distress, they need to be given as much as uh, necessary until um, help can, or can uh, get there to take them to the next step. I've heard different amounts from my pharmacy colleagues, but a nebulizer treatment with albuterol is usually the equivalent of about six to eight puffs of albuterol. That's why many families think that nebulizers work better and it's probably because they're just getting more albuterol. And they may also be more relaxed and using a better technique to be able to get the medicine in their lungs. But proper use of a meter dose inhaler has been shown in emergency department settings to be very effective in terms of treating an acute episode of bronchospasm. And, you know, concerns, I know the major concerns I hear are, you know, it can impact the heart or, you know, cause all kinds of problems like that. Are we going to see that if we're giving six to eight puffs of albuterol through a MDI with spacer? Well, what you might see is some tachycardia, but for the most part, um, in a child, it's not going to cause any myocardial ischemia. So I wouldn't be worried about it. I think the, we get into trouble when people are hesitant to give it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has been wonderful. And I thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. I think this is extremely helpful on so many levels. And we'll, again, link to the full document. Uh, Dr. Lemansky, is there anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Yeah, I'd like to um, 
just make sure that people um, know about the Sampro um, toolbox and the Sampro website. Uh, that I think is an incredible um, resource uh, for people in terms of treating children who have asthma in the school setting. And we've approached it from a variety of different standpoints, from the family, the clinician, the kids, the school teachers, the principals, the phi ed teachers, the janitors, the bus drivers. We try to cover it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, I think it's a great uh, resource and the reference to it is um, located in this document. Great, and we'll put links to that as well separately. Thank you. And Nurse Clark, I'm happy to give you the final words for our audience. Any additional thoughts as we all try to navigate a safe return to school? Well, thank you. You know, I just would like to share that um, every student deserves a school nurse all day, every day. And this is really important for our students who manage a chronic health condition such as asthma while at school. This provides the best health outcome for students and removes family fears about sending their child to school. Um, so I would like to add that every school deserves a school nurse all day, every day. The school nurse brings knowledge and skills to put their um, the policies in place and processes to protect the entire school against adverse health challenges, mental health, chronic health, and infectious diseases such as COVID. So thank you so much for this opportunity to um, talk about the document that we created and, and um, we're hoping that it's helpful in um, this response to COVID in children with asthma. Oh, well, thank you both. Yeah, thank you, David, for putting this together for us. It's, it's, it's been fun. Great. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.